few years back, um, I was doing an interim ministry for a church between pastors and uh, <clears throat> I met up with uh, the son of some dear friends. In fact, the, the fellow's father is probably the reason I entered the ministry of the word uh, back in uh, youth days at Scripture Union Camps. And it was great to catch up with this fellow. I'd had a couple of contacts with him over the years, but he was concerned, had some real pastoral issues he wanted to bounce off me and we went for coffee and when we got back in the car park at the church and he was dropping me off at, um, he, he got to the real issue that was really burdening him and a little bit of background it turns out that his uh, older sister uh, has a genetic problem that is uh, significant uh, it means that she's quite disfigured um, has some uh, skin growths uh, all over her that are you know, quite uh, grotesque. Uh, not only that, there's uh, health issues in terms of uh, energy and uh, a whole lot of stuff. You know, she's basically isolated, has no friends, uh, middle-aged, parents are getting old, they need to care for her, it's all going wrong. And the issue was not just that, but it was what that experience was doing to his faith and his heart and he said well where is God in that and I felt two things I felt um, I'd love to answer that but I also think this is a bit unfair like if I, I sensed there was a, a well of anger here that was about to burst and that would do damage to his faith and he really shouldn't be basing his faith on my capacity to answer the most profound theological question that is ever asked. I'm not that bright and uh, I'm certainly not that wise. Thank you. I didn't realise it was baptism service. To, <laughs> but uh, bring the babies. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the long and the short of it is that he was um, really disturbed that this was a meaningless act of cruelty. On the one hand, he had this view of God's sovereignty that reigns all things, and therefore his God, who he trusts to an extent, uh, must be behind this somehow. And yet he doesn't want cliches. He especially didn't want me to say those usual uh, phrases like all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, etc. It was obscene didn't leave me much scope. But fundamentally, I think he was making uh, a critical error that either he or I can situate this event of his sister's illness in the grand scheme of things and that I'd be able to therefore come up with a clincher interpretation where he would be able to sit there and go, Ah, oh, is that the reason? Well, I can accept that and go away and go on believing. Now, that's uh, impossible, isn't it? I don't sit upon the dome of the earth. I don't sit outside of time. I don't know the mind of God. I don't know where this fits into the great story. But I do know that all things work together for the good for those who love the Lord. The problem is caused by... Um, really, we tend to have 
only limited options when it comes to understanding the will of God, the sovereignty of God, the rule of God. How does he govern this world? And one is a deterministic view. Sometimes people think this is what the reform view is. It's not. And it's not the biblical view. It's a deterministic view. And when you go down that line, God makes all things happen. And therefore, that seems to take away the choice. I won't use the word free will because no one's will is free. But the choices that humans make. It's as like our choices become illusions, whereas puppets in a script that's already written, if determinism is the way God rules the world. The second option in the history of philosophy and theology is dualism. And that is that there's good things and bad things because there's a good force in the world and an evil force in the world. Many Christians use this. And that means that God is somewhat ruling the world, but he needs our help to pitch our lot in with him. Sort of the Star Wars type theology. And uh, the third one is deism, like uh, an 18th century view that God sort of made the world, yes. He rules in the sense that he made it and he wound up this clock and set it running. And then he stands back and from a distance he watches on. Deism. And basically, and there are very modern versions of this uh, in, in the evangelical world today, and basically he's waiting for people to respond to him and then he responds to them. So who's governing the story? It ends up that we are. There, those three options won't answer the question of why bad things are happening to the best of people. Why, where is the meaning in that? But uh, I want to suggest that this passage, long though it is, and we're only going to work through it five verses at a time in the Latin until... Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, um, it, it's a profound passage that will change, if you understand the core theology within it, it will change your life spiritually and emotionally and psychologically. It will give you concrete under your feet. This is the beginning of some of the most profound theology in the Old Testament that is finished up in the New Testament. It's almost as, as important as the theology of your justification being through grace, accepted by faith, not works. It's uh, that level of theology here. Now, we come into this story of Joseph and uh, you see that it's actually a theological narrative. Has anyone been able to read these 13 chapters sometime recently? Busy week. I suggest that in the next week that you go and read these chapters. I was going to show you a little diagram, but basically as you go through, let me suggest that as you read, look for the doublets. Things similar happen twice. See how many you can find. That'll open up the story. It's a profound narrative. It just makes a ripping yarn, regardless of the theology. I don't know why someone hasn't made it into a Nordic Noir miniseries on SBS, because it's better than any of the stuff they're showing. It's a remarkably well-constructed narrative. And uh, the narrative is constructed to hit us over the head with the theology, so we won't miss it. That's why things are said twice, and sometimes three times. And I don't think we get at this narrative through finding analogies to Jesus. 
I know that's the agenda that I was set to talk about Christ in Genesis. And, but I, I think fundamentally this story sets us up so that when Christ comes, we will understand where is God in this, in this travesty of Christ. And through this story, you'll notice as you read it, that unlike the story of the other three patriarchs that have gone before from Father Abraham, where God intervenes directly and he communicates directly and he has conversations, his handiwork in Joseph, he's backing off. But he's still in the story, but he's not overt. And this story is the bridge story that leads us from, pretty obvious, from Genesis to Exodus. It's almost like some kid was asking Moses one day and, you know, Father Moses, how do we end up in Egypt? <laughs> and this is the explanation. This is how we go from the promised land, which was promised to Abraham. Why did they ever leave? Why did they end up in Egypt? This is explaining that. How come they ended up in the Exodus later on? But the immediate context is quite disturbing, folks. And I think that's one thing that I love about the scripture is that uh, even the heroes have got clay feet. And this uh, story really begins in, in Jacob's story that you looked at last week, where Jacob is cheated by his uncle to marry the girl he really loves, Rachel, and he ends up with Leah instead. He ends up working 14 years for the child or the woman of his life. The idea, that's what I call idealisation. And uh, that drives this driven guy, Jacob. And, uh, you know, and then it turns out that Leah can have kids, but Rachel can't. The one he loves can't have kids. So Leah has four, and then Rachel gets the idea, why don't I turn my handmaid into your concubine? And she has a, he has a couple with her. Leah goes, oh, he likes concubines, does he? So he gives her his, his concubine. He has another two to him, to her. Uh, to Leah's handmaid, you know, it gets real. That is a screwy family. And here in our society, people in our time will be advocating for polygamy and polyamory. Mark my words. It is a, a family riddled with dysfunction and rivalry. It's like a class system within the whole family. Already in the previous chapter, Reuben, his firstborn to Leah, so resents Rachel that he actually rapes her handmaiden. Did you get that? That's a lovely story, isn't it? It's out of that that we come, my friends. <laughs> this is the family of the patriarchs. And so resentment is handed intergenerationally down the emotional tree. And we have what is called a chaotic enmeshed family that's bound, and Jacob knew, it's bound by secrets and by politics and deviousness. And then we come into our chapter for today and we read, and just before the passage that was read, we've got this 17-year-old. He's probably a bit of a mummy's boy. The other boys, all the other lads, uh, 11 of them at this stage, are, are out uh, doing the economics issue. They're, they're pasturing the flocks up north and they sleep out under the stars. Joseph sleeps with mum and dad. 
That's because he's the favorite. Why was he the favorite, folks? He's Rachel's only son. The love of his life that he waited for, that he worked for, finally was blessed by God with child. And boy, was that child in a terrible situation from that point on. He was so favoured that uh, things finally come to a head when, firstly, this young Joseph goes off and his dad sends him on an errand to find out how the flocks are going. And it's, it's the handmaiden's sons, the, those four are up. And he goes and they're, I don't know, they must have been playing cricket rather than looking after the flock. And he, he comes back with a bad tale. They're mucking around with the sheep, Dad. And, and uh, they get scolded. And, and so Joseph gets typecast as what? A dibber-dobber. He's the goody-goody. He's the teacher's pet. Not only that, he's got a mouth on him. And then the brothers, you see, the father shows his favoritism overtly in buying him a robe. Goodness knows what it looked like. Must have been some robe best money could buy. And Joseph wears this robe, which symbolizes what? <laughs> favoritism. He's special. And the text tells us that robe was not just a nice robe, it was a target on his back. It caused them to hate him. The brothers have problems as each dysfunctional family, like the one I came from, <laughs> has an inability to adjust when either someone is taken from it or someone is added to it. When the father takes a new wife, or when a new child is born, all of us have to adjust because someone cuts across the lines of affection and we feel it before we know it. A mature response is to get over it, to be happy with what you can get. But the brothers can't do that. They're rigidly locked into their emotional positions. They can't accept this. And so their volatile emotions are flipping all the time. Every time they see an act of favoritism, it trips their switches. And then you've got to say that the father is a little bit dopey and that one day, and here's the story coming to a head, he decides to send the dibber-dobber in the target coat out to see the real brothers of the other women. Not only that, but what has happened just before? This fellow has had two dreams, the first doublet that we find, a dream of sheaves cut hay, bowing down to him, a dream of astral bodies, mum and dad being the sun and the moon, coming and bowing down to him makes horoscopes sound tame, doesn't it? And not only did Joseph have those dreams, he told those dreams. This guy just couldn't read the room. Imagine telling the first dream. He didn't see their faces were just about to explode. Reuben and Judah would be turning orange. And this guy says, you know, you know the meaning of the dream? One day, I'm, you guys are going to come and bow down to me. 
and uh, mum and dad too. At which point, first bit of wisdom, Joseph, uh, Jacob basically says, son, pull your head in. Uh, Where do you get these grandiose ideas? They think he's got delusions of grandeur. Where do dreams come from? But uh, the day finally comes when this powder keg is finally lit. And Joseph, Joseph, what was he thinking? Sends this son out to talk to the brothers with this amount of dynamism trapped as anxiety inside the family tree. And they see him coming towards him after a long day, trotting through the fields with his lovely coat, which symbolised not just favouritism, but resentment. And when they see that coat and that dude, they think, let us finish the dream by finishing off the dreamer. It's not a bad plot. And then we just, all we need to do is supply the forensic evidence that it was an accident, an act of God even. And they think that they'll dump his body in a system that no one will ever find. They don't think of the eternal world watching that, do they? They've just got to convince the patriarch who's the magic man who holds the promise of their own destiny. He's just got to have the forensic evidence. Well, what do you know the story? We had it read to us. Basically, he's... Reuben pleads with them not to kill him but to let him die of natural causes. They think, ah, oh, schmog, causes, schmogers, throw him down in the pit, take the coat, and uh, they're having lunch, folks. They're having lunch. When who'd have guessed, but right at that minute, a trade load of Bedouin heading to town comes across the track. Someone has the bright idea. You know, we could kill him or we could have a killing. <laughs> and they drag him back up the pit and they sell him to these traders who are going to go down to the slave market. They're loaded with the very same things that you see Jacob sends to Egypt later, chapters later. A doublet. And they, they sell him to these, these traders and then they go back home to Joseph with ripped robe, dipped in animal blood, they feel that they are safe. Have they solved anything? No, now their father is as ripped as the rag. The hope of his whole life has just been taken, he thinks. And he's ruined as the robe. That's an amazingly tragic moment. He wishes he didn't have another day to live right then. Where is God in this? It's a horrible dream. And now you have a family that's not only held together by resentment, that's the source of their glue, folks, but now held together by a dreadful secret that they must keep. They've gone from being a chaotic family that couldn't stand each other's presence. Now they're a rigid family bound together with even more that is dark. And this is where 
Joseph's story takes off, that critical incident. The result is that Jacob, I think, was also wondering, well, what happens to the covenant now? Because this was the true wife and the truly born son, and now he's gone. He doesn't know about Benjamin. They haven't had Benjamin yet. He doesn't know what's going to happen. So he's also beset by worry. So if the question is to Moses one day, how do we end up in Egypt? Well, this is how. Joseph ended up in Egypt first. And you've got to fast forward the next 13 chapters, and I wish we had time to work through them, because they're a ripping yarn, and the tensions go up and down, and you just think things are going well when boom. And you know the story. Let's just take us a little way into it. Basically, um, <clears throat> I don't know what I've done here. My notes are all over the place, but let's just press on. It just so happens, which is just the way you tell a story. I mean, you can imagine telling this story around a campfire and each night an installation, you'd say, and it just so happened that Joseph goes to a slave market. You can imagine the hundreds of people being sold by the Bedouin down there. They did this for thousands of years. And the, 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 this boy stands out and he's bought by a very important guy, Potiphar, the captain of the guard of Pharaoh himself. This guy is an elite. And he picks up this boy because he sees a glint in the eye or something. He sees that this guy, you know, he's got something happening there. <laughs> and he takes him home. And, and uh, this guy's doing well, and he's so impressed that he, he makes Joseph his administrator of his own household. It would be a whole entourage that Joseph is managing. The kid's 17, and he's managing the affairs of the captain of the guard of Pharaoh. Not bad, eh? Things are going well when uh, the wife of this captain, Potiphar's wife, takes a shine of the worst kind to Joseph. He remembers whose story he really walks in and he resists her overtures, which she's a woman scorned, and he tries to flee and we have a second wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> and uh, Joseph flees and leaves his robe, whatever he was wearing, and she's got second lot of forensic evidence when Papa comes home that this wasn't her idea, it was the boys. Okay? Good story? You with me? It looks pretty hopeless at this point because the captain of the guard has got connections and he has this guy, this young buck, thrown straight into a jail and he ends up in the same cell with two other sorry dudes who work for an even higher authority for Pharaoh. One is the baker for Pharaoh, one is a cupbearer. You see, Pharaoh, like most tyrants, is paranoid. He knows that everyone wants his job. He never has a good night's sleep. And he knows that the people who are most dangerous are those who are closest to him and those who affect his dinner. And so he doesn't trust them. And on that basis, not on the basis of any evidence, but on the basis of his own suspicion, he has the baker and the cupbearer, the guy who was his food taster, thrown into prison. And they just so happened... <laughs> that they end up in the same cell as Joseph. Good story? Funnily enough, 
second lot of dreams. Two dreams. One about bread stacked up on their head and another one. And they both have these dreams with three parts in them. And it just so happens Joseph interprets dreams and he tells them, one of you is going to be restored to your job in three days and the other one, I'm afraid, you're going to part this world without your head. And uh, that's, I sometimes wonder whether Joseph was a bit aspy. <laughs> he doesn't sort of sugarcoat it at all. He just, this is what's going to happen, like it or lump it. Well, time goes by and Pharaoh, bang, he starts to have dreams. Double it. Two lots of dreams. Amazing, isn't it? And he dreams in about these sevens. One of them was about seven beasts that come out of the river, plump and happy, and then another seven come up scrawny, and they gobble up the fat ones. Strange dreams. No one can interpret his dream. But now the cupbearer is overhearing this at the dinner table. He goes, I know a guy... <laughs> I met him, oh, it doesn't matter where I met him, I know a guy who can interpret dreams. And he tells him about Joseph. Joseph comes up and starts to in, interpret the dream. Not only that he knows what dream Pharaoh has had, and he interprets the dream for Pharaoh, dreams plural for Pharaoh. And when you get plural dreams in the Old Testament, that's God's confirmation. It's fixed. It's going to happen. It's his second witness, if you like, to give the different dream. Same dream, same message, different cast. And Pharaoh is so amazed when he listens to this that this is about famine that's going to come. They're going to have seven good years and seven bad years. You know the story. Where does that happen again in history? Moses. Later on down the track. But now, in this part of the empire, and Egypt is the empire, there isn't anyone who can come near them, economically, militarily, politically. And this guy says that Egypt is going to bow the knee to famine. And so Joseph comes up with a solution. What we've got to do is, is basically <laughs> get ready for famine, so start storing the surplus. And then you can start selling that off. Now. There's two famines in this book. Well, the famine in the rest of the world and then the famine in Egypt later on, as you'll see. But who'd have thought? Right then, there's something about Joseph and Pharaoh recognises that this kid is touched by the divine world. Well, there's a long story that follows there and it's so good, I wish we could spend an hour just bouncing through it. But you see, that's... Famine plus Joseph plus Pharaoh plus Egypt plus grain is the reason why initially one day Jacob, when all food is gone, they're down to their last wipe of the yogurt container and they haven't got much to do, much hope, no way that they can pull out of this. And uh, I think the first of the, uh, the Enid Blighted series was written there and Joseph tells the... Uh, the terrible, terrible eleven to go to town, and off they head. <laughs> They've got to go to Egypt and buy grain, or else they're going to die, and their cattle are going to die. They've got no hope. 
And then there's that intriguing story, and we won't go into it now, where Joseph does not disclose himself. Twice he doesn't disclose himself. Another doublet. On it goes. Well, that's the issue. We finally come to the second passage, which was read to us. Actually, it happens twice. In chapter 44, it's 13 years later now, chapter 45, when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers, suddenly a theological penny drops. I don't think this is necessarily an act of miraculous revelation so much as an act of theological deduction. It just so happens that once the brothers are there and they bring back Benjamin, who he's never met. And guess what Joseph does to Benjamin? Do you remember the story? I just love this. He spoils him. Benjamin gets five times the food of the rest of the brothers. Same family dynamic passed down the generations. Anyway, Joseph finally comes up with his deduction. And in verse chapter 45, 5 to 8, three times he's saying, now I realise that God sent me to preserve you or to save you. Three times he says it in 5 to 8. God sent me here. This is God's doing. You know, you think you haven't seen God since Jacob's story and Isaac and Abraham, but God was there but hidden. So you've got to say, we missed out on one of the characters. Who was responsible here? Was it the father? Was it the robe? Was it the brothers? Was it the bitterness? Was it the stupidity of Joseph? Who gave the dreams at all the appropriate times amidst the resentments and the rigidity? Dreams come from God in this book. And now at the end of this story, and I'll leave the details to you, we finally have Jacob has died and the brothers still are insecure. Now that the patriarch is gone, their, their heat shield is gone. The guy has the promise who can, who can leverage Joseph. He's gone. And you notice in all the dialogues that they have with Joseph, never once does he say, you're forgiven. No, he says, you know, God was in this, but he, he never brings himself to say, I forgive you. He doesn't let them go. He, and he doesn't say also by the same time, he doesn't say, oh, it was nothing. I've done well, look at me. New robe. Nice house. Nice wife. Two kids. I can't complain. No, Joseph doesn't deflect their guilt. Notice what he says in chapter 50, verse 20. He says, as for me, and this is... I think, theologically, the most profound verse in Genesis. And it's basically said twice, 45 and now in 50, in a different way. This is the meaning of the book of Genesis, folks. When it gets said twice, run, run into our brains so you don't miss it. He says, no, no, this was no accident. And I haven't forgotten about it. As for you, you meant evil against me. You were responsible, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, preserved as they are today. You meant it for evil, 
but God meant it for good. And this is the nature of what I call the fourth way, sovereign grace. You see, the way our sovereign works is not the way I would work if I was running the universe. I'd be limited to determinism. What are the others? Dualism or deism. I'd have to reason in a way that's one-dimensional where I, X, causes Y. That's the only way I can reason in straight lines. But that's not the nature of eternity. You know, there's a lovely verse in Deuteronomy 29, 29, and you've heard it before, which says, listen to this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There are two ways, two sources of information. The information we have, revealed by God, and the information we'll never have, because that's God's decision, that we will not have it. And we can never understand the ways of God if he has not put that up. We can't understand how some people are elect to salvation and not. That was in the councils of the divinity of God, the deity of God, the councils of Godhead. And we weren't there and we'll never be there and we'll never understand it. And that's why it's not revealed to us. Likewise here, Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. On the surface, I can't understand it. It is part of the secret things. What we have to do is understand that the brilliance of God's sovereignty is that it's not like how I would run the world if I was sovereign. I would be left with cause and effect and linear logic. Not God. God's sovereign will is not governed by human freedom. Deism, forget it. Dualism does not good enough. God's sovereign will does not interrupt human freedom. You meant it for bad. Okay? God lets humans make real choices to which they are accountable, to which they are responsible, for which they will give account. Very real. The nature of God's sovereignty is brilliant because he still gets his will, though we get our will, even when it is abhorrently evil. God is getting his way and his will will come about. So all the three Ds don't do justice to the true brilliant nature of sovereign grace which is a different sort of sovereignty. It's a sort of sovereignty which miraculously God gets his way while we get our way. Or as this little uh, thing says, um, God's will governs within our real choice. While these brothers were doing their worst, while Pharaoh was doing his psychotic best, God was getting his people to Israel. That's sovereign grace. We have to understand that if we're to understand the pains of our own life. We really therefore cannot pontificate about stuff that we're not privy to in the Godhead above the dome of the earth in eternity. 
God's decrees are fixed, but his revelation is responsive to what is happening. You see, we come now to the question of Joseph and Christ. And how on earth this could happen? Now, Joseph's view is profound. It's revolutionary. But it is limited. And it's limited in two ways. Joseph could not see the future. He thought that God's will was just about preserving his family in the present. He didn't realise that this family had a whole future to look forward to, which ends with us. He couldn't see that Egypt was necessary so that they could end up as slaves, so that this slave people could be freed by a gracious intervention of God, so that that people owe him and he can make a covenant with them in the desert through Moses at Sinai. They are given the law so that they might enter a land which is pure gift, which they don't do a thing apart from possess it, and this land is gift that lives under the law so that they would learn that God, is, his arm is not short both to save and to judge and they're taken into exile, so that they will be purified and come back and inhabit that gift that God promised to Abraham because he always keeps his promises and no one can interrupt the will of God. And he's so that that purified remnant will be there when the one who was promised, the prophet like Moses, the Davidic king, the Messiah, the Holy One of God finally steps on the stage. Joseph could never see that. Isn't it astonishing? You see, that's what is brilliant about our God and his sovereignty. He makes this stage and it begins with a totally evil, dysfunctional, explosive family. He can do miracles with that. That's the materials he works with. But the second thing that Joseph couldn't see, his, his, limit, his vision was limited, he could not see also that the salvation he looked at was not real enough. He thought his family needed saving from family, when in fact they needed saving from God. They didn't just need God to propitiate their own evil, but propitiate the evil they had against him and their impudence against God. And you see, when Christ suddenly comes on the, 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 uh, the, the stage of history, he is opposed by the descendants of Joseph, who are entirely evil. He is deposed by the best of Israel, the Pharisees who know the story backwards, syllable by syllable. He is opposed by the aristocracy who get in cahoots with a very psychotic leader called Pilate who was very threatened and they leverage him to kill the Son of God. They mean it for evil. But God meant that for good. That's where Joseph and Christ have a very similar theology. 
It's the same theological structure, but it's a far more important need that is being addressed here. The need for propitiation of sin, not just provision of grain. We have a very similar text in the New Testament. That text you know backwards. It's all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's not dualism, is it? It's not that the good things work together for good and sadly the bad things work against it. No, all things, the good things and the bad things, are being used by God for your good. Because the sovereignty of God is just not raw power. The sovereignty of God is the love of God enfleshed in human history. He acts always for good. In any particular hour of darkness, God is acting for good. This is Christ's worldview. I am stunned by the story of Christ's crucifixion, particularly Luke's version, where having been tried unjustly, convicted of admitting his identity, he is on a cross hour after hour getting near his last. At which point the best of Israel come to him. Judas is gone. And the best come along and they look up at him and they say to him this incredible statement. They put up an insidious proposition to him. Do you remember what they said? They're looking up at the hanging Christ and they say, if you are indeed the Son of God, come down from the cross and, and we'll believe you. What sort of sovereignty do they have? They have a linear view of the world that good things happen to good people. If this is just a stunt, then come down and X will prove Y. Then we'll believe in you. They don't have a biblical worldview. They have a carnal pagan worldview, a rationalist, secular worldview. Whereas if I can't understand it, it can't happen. And they mock him with this challenge. Here is the irony. It's the irony of the Joseph story. That he stays there and he doesn't answer them because he's doing it for them. <laughs> he doesn't come down to prove himself. He saves them from the wrath of God that should have struck them dead right that minute for their impudence. That's sovereign grace. That's remarkable. That's the God we worship. A God who will take all our evil and turn it on its head for good. And so when I'm faced pastorally with unanswerable questions of intolerable suffering, even in our own lives, I still confess that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and accord according to his purpose. Why? Because that was Jesus' worldview. And he proved that because he had skin in the game. It wasn't a philosophical theory. It was a total commitment for him. And I trust him and adjust my worldview. 
if this was his worldview, it can be my worldview. If this is his word of covenant, I can take it and trust it. It's entirely reasonable if his sovereignty is gracious. Let's pause and give thanks. Our Lord and God, there are many times in our life where we do not see your handiwork, where it's all grey and clouds and storms, and where people seemingly are allowed to get away with evil or unfairness or injustice. Some of us have had health issues, some of us have had a truncation of our career, and some of us have had the loss of love and the loss of life. And Lord, we know it doesn't make sense to us. But thank you, Lord God, that nothing catches you unawares. We thank you, Lord, that nothing in our life is meaningless. We thank you, Lord, that nothing in our life shall have the final say. We thank you, Lord, that evil can be turned for good in the face of our Saviour. Thank you for placing us in this evil world, in this age, that we can hope for the best through the love of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and the Lord of the whole world. In Jesus' name we pray.